Well, this has been a great week for righteous indignation. Actually, it's been a great month, really, for righteous indignation. We've held our breath waiting to see if two million federal workers would have a regular Monday morning. We've listened to endless debate, much of it including information presented by public servants that turned out to be not so factual. And we've watched as our elected officials debated proportionally minute parts of our gigantic national budget in an effort to come to some kind of agreement about how to move forward. Of course, that's if we have elected officials. Those of us who live in Maryland and Virginia were able to feel righteous indignation toward the folks that we did or didn't elect to represent us. And frankly, in my opinion, no one came out looking particularly good. Those, those, of, those of us who live in D.C., well, that takes righteous indignation to a whole new level. I had planned this platform address to coincide with Tax Day on April 15th, since one of the rallying cries of D.C. voting rights is taxation without representation. But lo and behold, paying taxes suddenly seems like a minor thing when we see all that happens because of D.C.'s lack of voting representation and weak home rule. Now my guess is, from the boisterous singing in our opening song this morning, that I don't need to convince many of you that DC's lack of elected representation on the federal level is a shame. In fact, polling has indicated that the majority of Americans support voting rights for DC, provided that they even know DC doesn't have the right to vote. Mostly, I am sorry to say, Americans don't know that. We in the capital area tend to be a little bit more aware, and I think it's likely that many of us not only know about D.C.'s lack of congressional voting representation, but also want to change that. If you're anything like me, though, you aren't always sure exactly what it would entail to change that, or you can't pull out great arguments beyond, well, because it's wrong, or you wish you had a better grounding in the ethical reasons, the religious reasons, that this issue can be our issue here in this community. So what I'm hoping to do this morning is provide a little bit of that for you. We are lucky, as you know, to be joined today by Jennifer Matson from DC Vote. DC Vote describes itself as an educational and advocacy organization dedicated to securing full voting representation in Congress and full democracy for the residents of the District of Columbia. Jennifer will be leading a workshop after platform today at which she can tactfully inform you of any inaccuracies in my address this morning and give you a blueprint about how we might move forward. That's her job, the tactful part, I hope, especially. My job is to stir up a little righteous indignation, just in case you're not already boiling over. So let me start with some history. I should say here that I am indebted to a great document created by DC Vote and the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, and to a paper titled Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy by Nell Schaffer for much of what I'll share this morning. So the District of Columbia was incorporated in 1791 with the idea that it was safer to have a federal government that wasn't located within a state and therefore somehow favorable to that state's interests, which makes sense when you think about it. This didn't mean, of course, that the individuals living in that new district couldn't vote. Australia has a similar situation with the Australian Capital Territory and its residents have full federal representation. And so did the residents of DC in the beginning. 
In 1801, though, so it only took them actually two years, Congress passed the Organic Acts, which took away representation from residents of the district, not obviously the kind of organic that we flock to Whole Foods for. They still had some form of home rule, however, electing their own officials and government until 1874, when Congress took over total control of DC's affairs and stripped it of its power. DC residents didn't get back the right to vote for president until 1961. Can you believe that? President. <laughs> and of course, still don't have voting representation in Congress. DC does have a long-serving delegate, 20 years now, Eleanor Holmes Norton, who is given permission to speak on the House floor, but who cannot vote. Beyond representation in Congress, DC has had to fight for its right just to make its own decisions, a right that is by no means fully granted now. The Home Rule Charter of 1973 gave much authority to the city, but that authority is always pending congressional oversight. D.C. is governed by a mayor and a city council, but all of their decisions may be overturned by Congress, and Congress has to approve D.C.'s budget, much of which, of course, is made up of local tax dollars. This kind of congressional oversight means that individual congresspeople have historically used D.C. as a kind of battleground, playing to their bases or just playing out their own agendas on the little piece of land where they work. We'll talk in a bit about what this has meant for the district in the last couple of weeks, but suffice it to say that those events have not been unique. Congressional restrictions on D.C. have run the gamut from keeping D.C. from controlling gun sales to excluding D.C. from programs to help at-risk youth, which were allowed in every other state. The joy that we felt last year when this congregation, along with many others in D.C., celebrated the first legal same-sex wedding subject to being overturned by Congress. Same goes for DC's vital needle exchange program, particularly important in a city with one of the highest HIV AIDS rates in the country. I wonder though, what lies even deeper than these particular policy issues? What does it do to a people's psyche to be so disenfranchised for so long? Reverend Mark Schaefer, the Methodist chaplain at American University and a longtime advocate for D.C. voting rights, addressed this question in a paper he wrote in 2002 entitled Christian Ethics and Voting Rights for the District of Columbia. It has been the experience of disenfranchised communities, he writes, that the effects of that disenfranchisement go far beyond those outlined in the laws that exclude them. In the District of Columbia, he says, 200 years of disenfranchisement has had a profound effect on the social and political culture of the city. Generations of children have been raised under the notion that their input into running their own lives is irrelevant. Indeed, it is not uncommon to find in the voting rights movement a high proportion of non-native Washingtonians. Natives of the District of Columbia have become accustomed to a lack of political power as their lot. They are injured in ways that go far beyond the political sphere, but go to their very self-esteem and human dignity." End quote. It's impossible for me, at least, to hear these words and not consider the relationship of voting rights disenfranchisement in DC to racism. First, of course, because simply talking about a group of people who have been regularly and legally disenfranchised in this country sounds an awful lot like the African-American experience. Second, because my guess is that the lack of voting rights disproportionately affects D.C.'s black families, many of whom are multi-generational D.C. residents, 
while among the white DC community, and particularly the white upper middle class yuppie DC community, of which I consider myself a member, so I say that with all love, saying that you have lived in DC for more than five years gets a response of, ooh, you're almost a local. It stands to reason, it seems, that populations who practice more mobility because of higher income levels or a lack of family rootedness might be annoyed that they don't have a vote, but realize they can rectify the situation with a move to Maryland or Virginia, or back home to Ohio or Florida or any other state in the union. And third, I see the tie between DC's disenfranchisement and the historic disenfranchisement of African Americans because it is a commonly accepted fact that the district's lack of voting representation is linked to its status since about 1950 as a majority black city. In the paper I cited earlier, Seat of Democracy or Home of Hypocrisy, which is subtitled The Role of Racism in the Struggle for Voting Rights in the District of Columbia, Nell Schaffer begins her research with the location of the federal government in DC when the city was already 30% black, the majority of them free. Leading up to the Civil War, free blacks were subject to restrictive codes that governed where they went, how late they stayed out, and whether they could swear in public. They couldn't. During the Civil War, and of course particularly after the District Emancipation Act of 1862, which freed slaves within the district, African Americans came to the city in droves. They immediately began working to get the right to vote, and despite strong opposition locally from whites, Congress approved that right in 1867. As Schaffer writes, quote, within less than a year of being granted voting rights, black men accounted for over 45% of the total registered voters in the district. I mean, is that a voter education campaign or what? Blacks were elected to the city council in D.C., which actually passed an anti-discrimination bill that desegregated public entertainment spaces in 1869. Isn't it a funny coincidence that just two years later, in 1871, Congress passed the first bill stripping D.C. of much of its home rule authority? This bill created a territorial government, which was actually a bit of a disaster, and so was quickly followed by that bill we mentioned earlier, the 1874 bill, that turned complete control of the city over to Congress. Actually, no one really thought it was a coincidence. Politicians at the time were quite happy to make clear why they had taken over control of the district. Schaffer quotes from Senator John Tyler Morgan of Alabama, who said, It was necessary to burn down the barn to get rid of the rats. The rats being the Negro population and the barn being the government of the District of Columbia, in case you missed that. Now, the historical fact is simply this, Senator Morgan went on, that the Negroes came into this district from Virginia and Maryland and from other places. They came in here and they took possession of a certain part of the political power of this district, and there was but one way to get out, and that was to deny the right of suffrage entirely to every human being in the district and have every office here controlled by appointment instead of by election in order to get rid of this load of Negro suffrage that was flooded in upon them. End quote. So, not so much a coincidence at all. Over the next almost 100 years, D.C.'s fate was in the hands of Congress, and often the least able members of Congress. They were, of course, all white, mostly segregationists. 
Schaffer quotes historians Harry Jaffe and Tom Sherwood who wrote, the city was under direct control of committees that were the least prestigious in Congress. They were a proving ground for junior members or a dumping ground for embarrassing ones. Blacks in Washington had endured slavery, the restrictive black codes of the 1830s, and the riots of 1919, but Congress made the racism institutional." End quote. Attempts to push for home rule in the 1940s were met with speeches nearly as ugly as those given in the 1870s, warning that the district's blacks, the children of the alley, as described by one white DC resident who opposed home rule, would ruin the city. The 1960s saw advances for African-American enfranchisement and civil rights nationally and, again not coincidentally, advances for D.C. voting rights with the bill allowing D.C. residents to vote for president in 1961. Although arguments against home rule were getting a little bit more veiled, Schaffer cites, quote, a 1965 national poll on district voting rights in which 70% of those opposed to home rule responded that they were opposed because, quote, there are too many Negroes they would take over, end quote. In 1967, D.C. won the right to a city council and mayor of its own election, but white supporters of home rule campaigned to have the majority of the council and the mayor be white so as not to too much disturb Congress. D.C. said no, the district has not been served by a white mayor. In 1974, D.C. received the limited form of home rule that it currently has, so some control of local decisions, but with final authority, veto power, and budget approval resting with Congress. D.C. statehood actually became a possibility in the 1990s as Congress examined the issue. As we know, D.C. wasn't granted statehood, but from my perspective, the reasons are even more telling than the outcome. Schaffer writes, quote, according to a congressional index compiled by the Leadership Conference on Civil Rights, statehood was the most racially divisive issue in Congress in 1993. We're not in the 1870s anymore. This is quite recently. She goes on, the Congressional Black Caucus emerged as statehood's strongest proponent, with 97% of its members voting in favor of the act. Only 64% of the next most liberal contingent, white non-Southern liberals, approved of statehood. District of Columbia statehood was the most racially divisive issue examined by the leadership conference, dividing blacks and whites more than issues including gays in the military, a constitutional amendment to balance the budget, violence against women, and racial discrimination in capital offenses." End quote. There are, of course, plenty of arguments against D.C. statehood and against D.C. home rule and voting rights in general. These days, you are unlikely to hear a senator say that he opposes D.C. statehood because the rats would ruin the city. More frequently, you might hear cited D.C.'s sometimes challenging record of corruption and unbalanced budgets, although interestingly, I do not hear Congress calling for the repeal of voting rights to those states with unbalanced budgets or those states with corruption. The legacy of racism in D.C.'s history is difficult to ignore. And we would be naive, I think, to imagine it had suddenly disappeared because it has gone underground. As Schaffer asks at the conclusion of her paper, who in particular do Congress's present policies towards the district affect? Which groups do and do not hold political and social power in our country? Why has Congress neglected for so long to address such a clear instance of a lack of democracy? End quote. 
Well, I hope you have caught just a little bit of righteous indignation fire. If not, let me add a few more logs on there by citing quickly what's happened in the past few weeks. On the, oh my goodness, that would have been annoying end of things, a federal government shutdown would have meant the end of things like trash pickup in D.C. until the city got so fragrant that trash pickup was deemed an emergency. It would have closed all the D.C. libraries, and until the Friday when the budget deal was announced, there were serious questions as to whether D.C.'s public schools would have remained open during a shutdown. Luckily, those public officials that somebody elected, of course not the D.C. folks, managed to avoid a shutdown. Or was it lucky? Once again, D.C. was used as a political pawn in what has to be the most bizarre give and take ever to balance an almost $4 trillion federal budget. As part of the deal, D.C. lost the right to use local money to provide abortions to low-income women in the district. This program costs about $90,000 a year. Whatever you think about the program itself, it is hardly likely to be the key to a balanced federal budget. This is, as far as I can tell, pretty ridiculous. Outrageous might be another word. Six of DC's city council members and Mayor Gray certainly agree. They were arrested on Monday evening, along with our own Peter Bishop and 33 other activists, uh, among a crowd of over 200, protesting the ludicrous use of DC's practically meaningless, DC is a practically meaningless, but apparently symbolically powerful political pawn. On Friday, tax day for the rest of the country, but DC Emancipation Day here in the district, Wes's Joe London, who has been fighting for DC voting rights for quite some time, wore a gag to show the way that DC's residents are gagged as they pay taxes without voting representation in Congress. What I am wondering is, why aren't we wearing gags all the time? Why aren't there thousands of people in the streets waving DC flags and shouting? I think the answer can be found in that idea about what happens to your psyche when you've been disenfranchised for hundreds of years. People are tired. Some are hopeless. Some think voting rights would be nice, but unlikely. And of course, since they don't have representation in Congress, D.C. residents also don't have a lot of political clout to make it happen. There are a couple of ways to respond to this. All of them, I think, provide the grounding for the argument that this fight is a religious and ethical fight, a fight that this community and other religious communities must take up and move forward. First, and here I want all of you Maryland and Virginia residents to perk up your ears with me, First, D.C. cannot fight this fight alone. Located as we are just a few blocks from the Maryland line, this congregation has sometimes wondered where our call to justice lies, where our own neighborhood boundaries begin. I want to say to you that no matter where you make your home, if going into the city means going to the District of Columbia, then D.C. is your city and D.C.'s fight is your fight. We all have different reasons for choosing the place where we actually tuck ourselves into bed, but as people who gather at a congregation that stands proudly in the district, we have a role to play in the district's battles. In fact, the West members who laid the foundation for this building, who chose this site in 1964, made a conscious decision not to move the society into Maryland, but to stay in D.C. 
the least we can do, it seems to me, is honor them with our care for the city that hosts us. DC's residents would be much less hopeless if they could see that Maryland and Virginia have their backs. There's another reason why I think this issue belongs to us, a reason that is as much about hope and faith as it is about policy. Religious congregations, religious movements even, exist for myriad reasons, to provide a sense of community, to accompany people through the struggles and joys of life, to help people sort out right and wrong. They also exist to give people a sense of what is possible, to hold up a shining maybe when the world looks like a lot of no. Some religious traditions, of course, hold that maybe in another realm, but many are like ours, asking people to create the maybe, to live with the hope and faith that the world can be different than it is today. We say here that we believe in the inherent worth of every person, something which is not always self-evident in reality. We believe in it anyway. We are faithful to that possibility, that hope that every person is worthwhile and unique and precious. D.C. is not going to win voting representation this year. It is not likely to win it during this Congress. And it would be easy to throw up our hands and say that we don't know if it will ever win it, and so spending much time on it doesn't make any sense. My first answer is a practical one. What we need to do now is make the issue of D.C. voting rights so obvious, so well-known, so clearly unrighteous, that as soon as the political climate is right, it will be the first thing on anybody's list. But my second answer is about providing hope, about believing when the reality is not self-evident. I have a little thing for the Hebrew Bible prophets, and my favorite one is Isaiah. The book of Isaiah has some of the most beautiful passages. The wolf and the lamb lying down together, that's in Isaiah. The dream of a place where no being shall be hurt or destroyed on all my holy mountain. The other thing I like about Isaiah is that he called out to his people even though he knew he would fail. The story goes that God told Isaiah ahead of time that his mission would fail. His prophecy would be ignored. The people would fall into ruin and be forced into exile, which they were. Isaiah knew all of that, and he tried anyway. He believed in the importance of calling out truth and righteousness, despite sure failure, simply because truth and righteousness must be heard. Now, I'll be honest. I would like us to have a little more success than Isaiah did. But I resonate with the idea of standing up for a cause even when its outcome is uncertain. I read an interesting editorial by Cortland Malloy, a Washington Post columnist published last week. He was questioning whether DC really wanted the right to vote, questioning why there was relatively little action from the residents of DC on this issue. Quoting George Mason Professor Jack Goldstone, Malloy wrote, People need to have some belief that their efforts can make a difference. And then concluded, admit it, DC, you don't. Well, I can think of some communities in DC that know how to believe. So can other people, as Malloy knows. Going forward, Malloy wrote, Mayor Gray is calling on churches and civic groups to join in this struggle. That's not a strategy, it's political naivete. 
Not even the most liberal black congregations, writes Malloy, will have their ministers standing in the pulpit on Sunday mornings advocating self-determination to fund abortions, needles for heroin addicts, and legalized marijuana, end quote. In the last few weeks, I've been in conversation with Christine and Dennis Wiley, co-pastors of Covenant Baptist Church, UCC, in Ward 8. They were co-founders of the interfaith group DC Clergy United, which spearheaded the fight for marriage equality in the district last year. And the Wileys lead one of those liberal black congregations that Malloy thinks won't get behind the issue of DC voting rights. Of course, this particular liberal black congregation has championed the needle exchange program as part of its HIV AIDS ministry and hosts events sponsored by the Religious Coalition for Reproductive Choice. So I'm thinking maybe Malloy doesn't know the whole story, the whole possibility that faith and hope can bring. In the months ahead, I am hoping to work with the Wileys and with other clergy in the district, trying to figure out how we can bring a unified interfaith religious and ethical voice to the struggle for DC voting rights. I don't know yet exactly what that might look like, but I hope, I believe that there is a place for our voice in this struggle. And that if there is, I can count on this congregation to shout and sing and make the sounds of righteous indignation. DC voting rights is a hard issue to tackle. If you can stay for the workshop that will follow our platform service, you can hear much more about how advocacy groups are trying to tackle it right now. The fight for the district's autonomy and self-determination is connected in so many ways to our other work for justice, to our hope for continued equality for LGBTQ folks in DC, to our hope to improve our neighborhood and our city, our work on behalf of supportive housing and youth. But more than all those political reasons, I support voting rights for the district because it is so clear that it is the right thing. Because it is a start toward correcting centuries of racist policies. Because it's fair and fairness matters, especially when you believe that all people have worth. And because even when I think it seems unlikely or far off or hopeless, I choose to believe anyway. I choose to stand.